Hello, this is Andy from Oral Fixation. Earlier this year, I launched my new podcast, Tracks of Our Queers. You may have given the show a listen, or you may yet to have explored. Each episode, I interview someone who fascinates me on the music that has soundtracked their journeys as queer people. I'm currently recording the show's second season, but there's 12 episodes available now to listen to. You'll find screenwriters and comedians, artists and DJs, charity leaders and community elders all in the mix. If you haven't checked it out yet and still have an appetite for queers and music, I'll be sharing previews from the first season right here in the Oral Fixation feed. Enjoy the snippet, and if you like what you hear, head on over to Tracks of Our Queers now and subscribe. My name is Andy Gott, and each episode, I'll talk to a guest about one song, one album, and one artist that have soundtracked their life as a queer person. Johnny Seymour is a music producer, sound stylist, and activist. They work with artists across dance, film, fashion, and beyond, and produce music as stereogamous with Paul Mack. They've worked with queer titans like George Michael, Kylie, and Grace Jones. But I know them best as the curator of Queerberhood, a weekly performance evening at the Bearded Tit, an establishment often voted Sydney's best neighbourhood bar. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave a rating or review in your app, or even better, tell a friend. Tracks of Our Queers is an entirely independent production. So if you'd like to help keep the podcast ad-free, you can shop me a coffee via the link in the show notes. Every penny goes to episode production. This is a very special conversation, and I can't wait for you to hear it, but I should advise that we discuss suicide. So take care when listening. Over to Johnny. Johnny. Thank Hello. you so much for being here. It's a pleasure, Treasure. <laughs> I really have been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. Your mission, so I have read online, is to collaborate in all mediums, share platforms for inducing positivity, and resonate joy for all. How does music play into that mission? It's a beautiful conduit to... Well, it's a beautiful drug. Music is a drug, and it's addictive, but you can't overdose on it, and it can be shared indefinitely, and it's an infinite resource. You're never going to hear all the music that's out there to be heard, and being a hug dealer and a music <laughs> dealer, it, yeah, it, it sets me up in this beautiful position in community where I can share what I love and, you know, go have, you know... A, a, obsessive compulsive music disorder but i can pass on all the beauty that i find and and lift people's hearts and i think heal mm-hmm. and galvanize community mm-hmm. you know we can with it with a dance floor especially within our queer community it's such a sacred and beautiful place to to experience so the privilege i have of Pressing play is immense, and I'm grateful that it can be received. Yeah. What an exciting privilege that is of just pressing play. Absolutely. Incredible. Yeah. You've raised it before I have, so I think we go off in this direction. One of the first things I noticed about you was this warm, enveloping hug that I found myself in around you. And you are a self-confessed hug dealer, but 
The hugs that you deal, Johnny, have always felt to me so sincere and genuine. And as I'm sure many people you hug feel that way. And I think, you know, our first hug was long before the pandemic. But I'm now thinking, how did that maybe change in the pandemic or afterwards for you? Well, I love to hug. The beautiful thing about giving a hug is you get a hug. So it is this beautiful return serve thing about it, especially in our spaces, our, you know, our community gatherings, our dances and so on. We're, we're set up that it is a safe space. So hugging someone <clears throat> with intent and with a sense of unconditional love is great because the environment is set up like that. And now and again, I'll see people I know and I can hug them on a train or something like that. But meeting people for the first time, I, I think it's a really healthy way to connect. So the pandemic, you know, bringing people together and hugging, which my two abilities were put on hold indefinitely. And even coming back into it, I always say they're consensual hugs. I won't just randomly grab someone and will offer us like, is it okay to hug? So that was that was really difficult because it is part of my therapy, being able to receive hugs, being able to give hugs, be able to make people feel at ease, be able to pe- let people feel loved is, yeah, that was, you know, it became the new barebacking. Like really not, not allowed to do that. And even, you know, barebacking was kind of made easier with prep, but... Yeah, you know, before vaccine rollout and all that kind of stuff was like, this was something that I had to somehow rebrand myself, which I didn't really manage to do. So, yes, I'm really glad that we're getting on top of this virus. It it certainly hasn't gone away. I don't think it's ever going to go away, but people are more open to being hugged again. So I just make them go a little bit longer now Mm -hmm. because people, (laughs) there was, you know, the the great hug drought Mm -hmm. is finally the drought's breaking. Mm -hmm. Drought is breaking. Yeah. Yes. Love that. That makes me and my mental health in a much better space. You were born in Tasmania. Mm. Can you tell me how you made it to Sydney? Well, I grew up in Tasmania and... Growing up there, it was, even at a very young age, it was like, why are we on the furthest place on the planet away from everything? <laughs> and even as a young child, it was like, why are we so far away from Sesame Street? Mm-hmm. And I was literally, it was the furthest away from Sesame Street. And mum reminded me, I asked her, like, did you deliberately, you know, move to Tasmania because I was a painful birth and you wanted to be far away from Sesame Street. No, darling. (laughs) It's just where we are. Yes. And, you know, the the privileges of growing up on that space, I became aware of the further I was away from it. Mm -hmm. And that was learning how to surf and learning how to ski and being able to go whitewater rafting, be in pristine world heritage forests. There was a huge connection with Mother Nature that I thought everyone on the planet got to experience. But... It was unique to being on an island. And everything was kind of great up until riding into puberty. And Tasmania was the last place in the country to decriminalise homosexuality, or sodomy specifically. And that was a really 
hard thing for me to come to grips with because having the Premier of the state get on television during the news and say, we welcome people from all across the country, from doesn't matter what nation or creed, you, we welcome you, asylum seekers, refugees, doesn't matter what language you speak, as long as you're not gay. Mm. And these are the only people that aren't welcome on this island. Wow. And, you know, we don't... We know we're homosexuals from a very early age, and that was one of my biggest fears is coming to terms with that. So I knew that if I was going to love the way I needed to love, I had to leave the island. And I was pretty horrifically gay-bashed when I was 19 and jumped by an anonymous group of hateful people. And I was bashed unconscious. And the last words I heard before... I blacked out was die AIDS poofter and had my head bashed in with an iron bar and sort of woke up and was in traction and hadn't, you know, explored my sexuality physically and knew from that point it was like I could have died without ever being able to love the way I was meant to love. And the government had induced that violence by going out there saying that, you know, this will bring AIDS to our island, you know, these homosexuality is linked with pedophilia, all the horror memes and, and stories that were out there were being, you know, used by our government to encourage people to be violently homophobic. So I made it a mission to like, okay, I've got to get off this island and go to a place where I can love the way I, I, I can. And no disrespect to the amazing gay activists who I marched with and fought with and so on, who were determined to stay on the island. Yes. Um, that just wasn't my story. And it's two beautiful mature-age students brought me to Sydney one summer and after two weeks, I just came home, packed up all my stuff and moved here. Yes. And, you know, came to, moved into Crown Street, Darlinghurst, into a beautiful share house. And quite soon after that, got my first DJ gig at the Stronghold, which was a clandestine leather bar underneath the Clock Hotel. Welcome to Sydney. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was beautiful because, you know, I made up a bunch of demo cassettes and took them around to different gay bars and... Basically was told I was too weird and inappropriate and, you know, I didn't play enough gay music. What was gay music in quotation marks? Kylie. Right. Yeah, that was that was it. But at the Stronghold, I took my demo cassette in there and the beautiful men, Tim and Dan, who ran that bar, just looked me up and down and was like, you've got the gig. And I was like, oh. And it was the first time where, you know, I was, yeah, I was I felt sexualized and... It was great because I'd never sort of been, I'd never been able to use that as, as sex as a weapon, something yeah, like that. Yeah. And to be platformed like that, if, if they're like, the men are going to love you. So I'm like, do you want to listen to my music? And they're like, no, just wear those shorts. <laughs> so yes, that was yeah, my first show and things just grew from there. Not long after that, I started working at the Bentley Bar which is again on you know on Crown Street and they had a a beautiful Sunday morning 
thing that would open at 5 a.m. Mm. And I lived just up the street, so often they, I would just get a knock on the door saying, nobody showed up, can you come and play some music? Mm. So had this one thing was very much chemical, chemical youth and old school leather daddies. I managed to be immersed in both those mm. communities and as the years got on, they kind of merged. Mm. And twinks become bears, and yeah, and there's there's a beautiful amalgamation that becomes one. Mm. Yes, let's crack on. You brought a track, an album, and an artist. Fantastic way to set up a podcast, darling. Like it's a beautiful, just cross view of, and because music is so deeply related to who we are as people, and music forms our beings, and so. An honour to come and share this Wonderful. with you. Which track did you pick? I picked a track by Sylvester called I Need Somebody to Love Tonight. It's produced by incredible composer named Patrick Cowley and he collaborated with Sylvester on many tracks and unfortunately both of them were murdered by AIDS and fortunately their legacy is eternal and this track is I think it's 105 beats per minute Mm. which um, if you don't know what that means, it's you know, beautiful. <laughs> yeah, gen- generally, you know, a lot of the, the stuff you'll hear in the clubs will be 125 and up, and 105 is is very much, you know, low slung, and it's a ballad, but it's also beautiful makeout music. And you know, as Everybody has that sense of longing, but I think it's more so for queer people because we're taught from a very young age that our love is forbidden and so on. And to have a song that soundtracks that sense of longing so beautifully is um, a wonderful thing. I usually cry Mm -hmm. when I play it out, and I think crying as a DJ is okay. First of all, yes, it absolutely is. But what makes you feel that emotion about this song specifically? There's definitely having this goddess Sylvester sing and and knowing that can hear the emotion in her voice and how beautifully it's put together. And originally it was just instrumental that Patrick released and... Sylvester taking it to the next level. I think we lost so many amazing artists and people within our community were stolen from us with this hideous fucking virus. Excuse me, I don't mean to be obscene, but that virus is obscene. And the people that were taken from us that died really heroic deaths because it's it takes people out in such an ugly way and there was so much shame connected to it as well and Sylvester went out quite publicly he she they 
hate interchangeable pronouns, but one of her last public appearances was at San Francisco Pride in a wheelchair. And she had no shame about being ravaged by this virus. And her last moments of being on the planet, people gathered and sang songs to her, which is just a beautiful community response. And going to San Francisco and meeting her ex-boyfriend and people that were around her informed me just of how, just what a, a, a wonderful person she was and how much advocacy she gave to people with the virus and to live fearlessly and with pride. So, yeah, there's something sacred about this song. I think, you know, in churches they have hymns, and I think for queer people we have hers. Absolutely, yes. So, and, yeah, this is one one, one piece that, you know, I'll generally always play it at the bearded tip because yep. it isn't a dance floor-focused, you know, space. And without without fail, someone will either come over and say how much this song means to them or what the fuck is this? Being in a position where I can put this song in people's hearts and put it in their minds and put it on their playlists is, yeah, I love being able to do that. (laughs) 